Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with your questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. All right, so jumping in here, cracking the code in Hollywood is not easy. The road and creative process to getting film and television projects greenlit and across the finish line with an end product that effectively tells the intended story is arduous. Getting to a yes for women and people of color, telling their stories has been even more challenging in the traditionally white male-dominated industry of entertainment. Stephanie Elaine Bray began her career in the mid-1980s as a reader at the Elite Talent Agency, CAA, a job that requires reading scripts and books submitted to the agency and providing coverage of the material. This is often the first barrier material must pass for further consideration and development, a position Stephanie was well-suited for having attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, graduating with a BA in English and creative writing. In her next position at Columbia Pictures as one of only two African-American readers, the young USC student found his way to her and pitched his script under the guise of an interest in the job Stephanie was looking to replace herself with another African-American. That student was John Singleton, and the script he pitched was Boys in the Hood, and the rest, as they say, is history. Hustle and Flow and Dear White People, to name just a couple in a long list. Stephanie rose through the ranks to become Senior Vice President of Production at Columbia Pictures and was influential in encouraging and developing an African-American filmmaking community in Hollywood in the 1990s. Amid a brilliant career with numerous awards, accolades, and accomplishments, including her role as festival director for the L.A. Film Festival from 2011 to 2016, she also made a first as the first African-American female of color to produce the Academy Awards and made history again recently by becoming the first woman of color to be named as president of the Producers Guild of America, roles she shares with uh, longtime veteran Donald DeLine. Stephanie Elaine's Homegrown Pictures is a film and television production company dedicated to creating content by and about women and people of color with authentic stories, depictions, and representation. There is lots to talk about with Stephanie. Thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Nice to see you. So, Stephanie, we kick things off with our short order questions. It's a little restaurant terminology just to get us on a roll. So tell me, what music are you listening to these days? What's what's in your earbuds? I'm listening to Billy Preston because I'm producing my first documentary about Billy Preston, which has been so interesting and enlightening and fun. And the thing about Billy is that he not only had his own career, but collaborated with some of the biggest names in my lifetime, including the Stones, the Beatles, Eric Clapton, Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, it's a pretty eclectic group of people. So whenever I'm working, I tend to just envelop myself with whatever is happening at the time. So that's on my playlist now. Yeah, I want to come back to Billy Preston because I did read that and I thought, wow, how interesting. Billy Preston, not somebody a lot of us, we've all heard of him, but don't know much about him. That's the great thing about docs is you think you know or you might not know and you come away not only entertained, but enlightened. Yeah, totally. 
right, so tell me, morning beverage, what's the first thing that you consume? The first thing I consume is an iced almond milk latte with one shot. That's very specific. <laughs> it is. All right. And vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or other? How's your diet these days? I have a very healthy diet, but it's pretty much everything. I grow my own vegetables, so I have a garden at home, which I started pre-pandemic, and then the pandemic just brought it to life. So I grow a lot of my own vegetables. I eat a lot of fish. I discovered also during the pandemic an amazing fish market in Studio City, the joint, which has just delectable fish and very well sustained. So it's not part of the problem. But I like a good steak now and then. I'm a Creole chef myself. So I do like to cook shrimp Creole or gumbo every now and then. But I just try to keep it varied. A lot of different spices, a lot of different foods. Yeah. I wish I had known that because we certainly could have had you come in and do a little celebrity guest chef for us with the Creole backgrounds. I would have loved to. You would have rocked the house <laughs> with that. So how about your favorite L.A. restaurant of the moment? One place that you find yourself going to more frequently now? I'm in the Valley. So I frequent a lot of places in the Valley from Kiwami because I do eat the fish. Anna Jack Thai is really good, which is also, I saw on one of the best restaurant lists. There's a spot downtown, Major Domo, David which Chang. is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. But to be honest, and I haven't been to Post and Beam in a while, but I love that spot. But to be honest, cook a lot. So I don't really go out that much for dining. And my husband's always like, where are we going to go? I'm like, dinner's ready. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> So how about a power dining spot in L.A.? If you've got to go to one, what's your home court? Okay. So the new home court dining spot is Superba Hollywood. It's outdoor dining, delicious food, and it's the commissary. You're guaranteed to see people there. And it feels so good after staying home for two or three years to just go out in the middle of the day, see people. All right, we'll leave it at that. How about the last movie or TV series that you really loved? The last movie that I saw in theaters I loved was The Woman King, Gina Prince-Bythewood's movie. Fantastic. I'm so proud of her. I produced one of her movies and one of her husband's movies, so I'm very close to them, and I just couldn't be more proud of what she accomplished. On television, there's a couple things, because I do watch television. Dope Sick was amazing. I thought Dope Sick was very well done and powerful. Atlanta, I have to watch because it's so out there. It's crazy. Are you watching Atlanta? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, dip in there. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's insane. And I'm also watching The Patient because my brother-in-law directed several episodes. And it's also by the guys who created The American. And it just... If you want to get your blood pressure up. Okay. I, my wife and I discovered a great series that I'm hoping there's going to be a season two for, but it was a British television show called You Don't Know Me. Have you seen that? Oh, this actor, Stephanie, is... I have to write that down. Yeah. African-American, well, it's not a black actor, English actor, British actor. This lead brother is sensational. I think we're going to be hearing from him. He okay. reminded me of a young Denzel, to tell okay. you the truth. Okay, yeah, you got to write yeah. that down. Check that out. There's so much on television. There's no way you can watch everything. I know. And I want to talk to you a little bit about streaming in a minute. Last one of these, your all-time favorite movie. 
How hard is that? Why do you do that? <laughs> the Godfather is pretty classic. It's just brilliant. It's just, I could watch it over and over again. Yeah, Godfather 2 for me is, doesn't get better than that. And The Godfather 2, both of them. I kind of put them together. At one point, I strung them out and I watched all three together. But yeah, it's a classic that just keeps on giving. Yeah. What can I say? No, I, I agree. All right. Thank you for that little stroll. And let's jump in here. How you doing? I'm so well, thanks. I'm good. I'm good. Good. I became a grandmother over the pandemic, so... I have new loves in my life. My two little <laughs> granddaughters. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Twins? No, they pumped them out two years apart. All right. Congratulations, Sue, on the newest appointment as co-president of the PGA, along with, as I mentioned, Donald DeLine, who I remember from way back. He's always showed up at various restaurants and just been a, he's a cool guy. I like Donald. Tell him I said, I please, hope he remembers me. And can you just describe what that role entails and why this was something you wanted to take on? I mean, you have a pretty full plate. I do have a pretty full plate, but let me just tell you that the producing profession is in somewhat of a crisis moment right now. We're the only craft on a line item budget that has no minimum, that has no health insurance, it's completely unprotected. And as anybody can produce, you, you, everybody produces. So you could be an actor and produce, you could be a manager and produce, you could be a financier and produce. The Producers Guild several years ago enacted the mark, the PGA mark, which really, and I think very effectively created a standard for producing. If you wanted to accept the Academy Award for Best Picture, which we do as producers, you had to at least do a certain amount of responsibilities on set from the budget to being on set, to development, to post, to marketing, all the things that, that we in fact do. With the advent of streaming, and it used to be, let me just back up and say it used to be that we would develop scripts, find material, develop them, hire writers, work on these scripts for a, a year, two years, 10 years. But when we got it made, we had an ownership position. We had a back-end position. So in success, you could make up for all that hard work. But with the advent of streaming, they came up with this other idea, which was, let's just pay you a bump up front. Let's give you 10% up front or 20% up front. Let's buy you out, basically. We're going to own this. We're going to take it around the world. We're going to show it in every single country. You're not going to get another penny. And... That coupled, I think, with the pandemic just squeezed us out of the equation. And now when I talk to producers, producers are the first ones to say, okay, fine, I'll cut my salary a little bit to get the movie made. I mean, it's not going to be on the screen. So let's use that extra hundred for wardrobe or whatever. That's the wrong attitude because seriously, having a strong producer who has been with the project, who is on set, who has the project in mind from 30,000 foot perspective and also on the ground, is going to make a better movie. And so I think at this point, when they came to me and asked if I would run, I felt the responsibility like I do when I was involved in women in film or when I was involved in film independent. It's like somebody's got to stand up and say, we matter. Somebody's got to stand up and say, this isn't fair. And I guess that person is me. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Stephanie. And I completely understand why that would appeal to you. And knowing also to think of things so often through the lens of a restaurateur, but I think of opening and running restaurants is a lot like producing and that you have the best interest of the project is what motivates you. And to have those eyes and hands on that project from the beginning through whatever, in my case, it's nightly, but in your case, it's once it's finished and in the can, it's essential to be realizing that creative thing becomes what you intended for it to become. Exactly. It's the person that has the best interest at heart from the very beginning to the very end. And when you invite people into the project, I always make sure that they're in sync with whatever that initial desire is. Like, why are we making this? What, why? What's the reason? And interviewing people, I don't care if they have Oscars, I don't care what they do. They don't feel the same way. They're not the right person. And, but even people have their own motivations when they come in to doing things. And so the producer's the one who really can step in and say, remember what we talked about. Remember this is theme. Remember how important this is or whatever. And so I'm excited to be a part of a community that is really striving to create content that matters. And it's not, you talk to producers, never a paycheck. Nobody's in this to get rich. We're in this to create amazing movies and TV series that have something to say. And the value of expressing yourself through and seeing yourself on the screen is cultural. I mean, you feel it. I've seen it from my very first movie with Boys in the Hood, and that really got me hooked. And Singleton really taught me how to protect the artist, how to protect the movie. And I just haven't stopped. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to come back to John, because I know you and John had a very special relationship, and I do want to come back to that. And before we get into your amazing career, Stephanie, I mean, your track record of producing great movies and TV shows now is just incredible. But before we do that, I do want to spend a minute on the streaming world. And it's been publicized, I would say widely publicized, that Netflix is experiencing some challenges to its business model. And it's facing competition also from entertainment companies with deep libraries. And this, while the package of programming to customers, the price is increasing. And now there's talk of maybe commercials being an option to bring the price down. And we're maybe looking at a different universe in the streaming world. I know that you've talked about in the past how streaming created just proliferation of options for creative projects to find homes in the past. That's what it has provided. But I'm curious now what your view is of the current state of streaming. Are we look, looking at major changes? Is it starting to contract a little bit? What's happening there? Yeah, Netflix has changed a lot over the course of existence as a content creator. And I think one of the things is that they began to behave more like a studio. Like originally, they came to me as producers. We're not producers. We're tech people. You're a producer. What do you want to do? That was a golden age. Oh, it's really fun. My, my sons made a film. We licensed it to Netflix, French Dirty. I made my acting tape. I'm just waiting for the calls. They didn't count. <laughs> Burning Sands, which was Gerard McMurray's debut as a director, as writer-director. Juanita, which was my girl's movie, The Love Letter to My Mom with Alfred Woodard. And they just let you go. They said, here's the money. Let go. Bring it back. 
which we did. But since then, they've staffed up with so many executives from studios. And now there's so many executives that I can't even keep track. And so I think one of the things is quantity over quality has hit a wall. And when you're scrolling, and by the way, they do make great things, but when you're scrolling and you see all the movies that are being made, you understand why they had to put a pause on. Because at the end of the day, quality is what counts. But it's all cyclical. You've been in this business long enough to see it come and go. Remember when there was just the big seven studios, and then there was the little studios within the big studio, and then those went away. And then the studios used to make Boys in the Hood and Last Action Hero. And now they only make the Marvel movies and the big movies. The thing about movies and entertainment is it's always going to be here. We need it. We crave it. We want it. And it helps us live better lives. It really does. So this is just another phase. Everybody wanted in the streaming. Everybody got in the streaming. And now who's going to be left standing? Disney Plus for sure. Amazon for sure, Netflix for sure, HBO Max and HBO are the high quality. My deal's at HBO. I love HBO. I'm about to do, I've got some really great things in development, including Sula, Toni Morrison, amazing book, which we're getting very close. And you just can't throw stuff at the wall. Not necessarily for you, Stephanie, but would you say that as a result of what you just described, it's gotten harder to get things made. I know you have a reputation, you've got deals, but... Look, Brad, it's always hard to get things made, especially if you want to make things women, especially if you want to make things with people of color or women of color. It's always hard. And I would say when I say that with my colleagues who are white, they say, yeah, it's always hard. We have the same problem. You're asking people to put up millions of dollars for something that doesn't yet exist. So I understand that. The good thing about streaming is that faces like ours are all over the world now. It used to be they wouldn't put money into marketing overseas because they didn't believe we traveled. We sold overseas. That's right. Guess what? We travel. Everybody travels if it's a good store, right? Look at Squid Game. How could that be one of the biggest shows ever? Because it's human. It's because it taps into something very human. You just have to ride it out. What's interesting about this time period, like other time periods, is that it flushes out the wannabes. It flushes out the folks who are here just to make a buck. The people left standing are the people who really believe in movies, the people who really believe in content as a cultural vehicle for telling our stories, for living in these times. And that's what's really exciting because I'm going to be here. I don't know about everybody else. I'm sticking it out. <laughs> Lucky us. And I've heard you also, Stephanie, talk about various financing options. You've mentioned a company called Level Forward that's owned by Abigail Disney and Adrian Becker. Becker. Yeah. Do companies like that, along with financing production, do they also cover distribution, advertising or promotion, or is it just strictly funding for the project? Everybody's different, but specifically with Level Forward, they had money for development and for production and took those movies, sold them at festivals to streamers or other distributors. They also got into Broadway and had some really great success on Broadway, Jagged Little Pill, and put money in Oklahoma and Slave Play and really spread the money around. The great thing about them is they put their money where their mouth is in terms of women. It's a really a women-focused company. But at the end of the day, you still need the distributors. You still need the studios for 
a streaming company for that movie to get shown. So we're all in line to make, we can make whatever we want. You can make something on a cell phone, as my friend Steven Soderbergh does quite brilliantly. But at the end of the day, you need a platform. You need a mm. distributor show. Yeah. So I admit to being a fan of Nora Ephron, the late, great Nora Ephron, and movies like Love and Basketball and Romance, Real Life, not reality TV, those kinds of stories and that make you laugh, make you cry, make you want to be in the movie or, or live like that. And I don't see a lot of those projects coming out. I know you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Marvel movies and all of that, but we're not really seeing a lot of those films. So what is Hollywood saying? What are they greenlighting these days? What are they saying yes to mostly? They're saying yes to big movies. They're saying yes to IP that has some other iteration, whether it's a book or a toy or a comic book. Yeah, it's when you think about studios that used to make 20 some movies a year that are making five or six, you realize how limited the options are for studios, which is why the streamers are so important for the rest of us, right? But there, there's great spots like Nicole Brown over at TriStar. She's the only Black woman to be president of a movie studio. She just made The Woman King. It's a $50 million movie. I'm sure that was hard as hell for her to push through, but she got it through and it's working. She's back following that with I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston movie. There's no coincidence that those are the movies she's championing. You know what I mean? So it always comes back to the gatekeepers. It comes back to the people at the studios who are in positions to say, I'm fighting for this movie. This is something I want to see. Because that's how movies get made. People just sit around saying, what do I want to see? What's going to flip my boat? What do I go out to see? And if you have a homogenous group of folks, you're going to get a homogenous group of films. Yeah, it's succinct and clear. And I completely understand that. So on the subject of The Woman King and its success, it's certainly something to feel good about and not taking anything away from the film. But I have heard some criticism that the writers were not black. I know Gina Prince Bythewood is a friend of yours and you've worked together many times. She's the director of the film. What's your take on that? I'm sure you've heard that too. Yeah. Maria Bella went to Africa, heard this story, got together with Dana Stevens, another white woman. They brought it to Kathy Shulman, another white woman. And then they were like, okay, we've got this big black woman movie. What do we need? <laughs> Look, everybody should be able to make whatever movie they want. I don't want to pigeonhole us. I don't want to pigeonhole anybody else. I do know that Gina brought her own writing to bear on the movie. I've heard her talking about scenes that she's written in the movie. I didn't see the script before Gina got to it, so I don't know how much. But we want to bring our stories to the screen, right? There's so few of us in position to be able to walk in and say, this is what I want to do. Movies that get made like Gina's, however they get made, help the cause. So I'm not mad at them. I feel like they saw something in that story and had the wherewithal to push it through the system, then more power to them. I just want to see more of us at play. I just want to see more of us. And it's happening. We've been in this business a long time. And I can tell you now we're in a better place than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's just the truth. But progress is slow. And I think people in the midst of it can't see the long arc, but it is there. It's happening. When you see Creators like Shonda or Kenya or Ava or Donald Glover, where they're literally 
in charge of their destiny. And that's a beautiful thing. Agreed. So just going back a little bit here, Stephanie, on a personal front. So you and I share a common background. I'm biracial. I know that you are as well. I'm actually not biracial. You're not? (laughs) No, it says in Wikipedia, my mother's white. It's so funny because I got to change that. No, we're from New Orleans. We're Creole. We're light-skinned Creole. But the funny thing is my mom did her 23andMe and it came back. She was 70% white. So like, it's a crazy world. But no, I consider myself black. My kids are biracial. So you were born in New Orleans. You moved to Los Angeles in 1965. From Pittsburgh. Yeah, I was born in New Orleans, but my father was in school. He was at Tuskegee in Alabama. He was in the University of Pittsburgh. And finally, when he got his PhD, we moved to L.A. Okay. In 1965. And did you move to Inglewood at that time? No. No, we moved to where my mom lives now, which is Miracle Ma. Okay. I went to school in Inglewood. Okay. I went to St. Mary's. And 1965, of course, that was the year of the Watts riots. You would be too young to remember much of that. But I'm curious, what was life like growing up for you and going to school in Inglewood? What was that childhood like? As I said, I grew up in Miracle Mile, so that's like Wilshire and La Brea. Life was good. We went to Catholic schools, mostly white Catholic schools for grade school. But we, there was a big movement of people from Louisiana to Los Angeles in the 60s. So Baldwin Hills is where a lot of folks settled in. So we had a dual growing up where we were in mostly white neighborhood, going to white schools. But on the weekend, we were partying up in Baldwin Hills in those basements, doing, doing dancing and, and grinding and kissing. I'm so fun. Because there was this whole group of professional Black folks, doctors, lawyers. My father is a biochemist and educator. Women were educators. So it was a really fun, memorable growing up for me. We went to St. Mary's Academy in Inglewood, all-girls school, because that's where a lot of the children of all these professionals went. And that was great, too. I have my best friends from, I still have them from that period. And then after that, I went to USC for a few years until I went to Santa Cruz. I have been blessed, I will say, and I've always loved school. I've always loved, I'm a teacher's pet. So I've always wanted to excel and perform and it was all good. I am not mad at it. It was all good. So having spent some time in South LA, I've seen where you talked about recognizing the characters that were in Boys in the Hood, when you read that screenplay by John. I wanted to touch on that a little bit with you. I met John at, uh, we had opened a nightclub when I first moved to LA in 89 called Roxbury. Sure. And uh, you might've been just old enough to get in. They had the best coconut shrimp there, I remember. You remember that? (laughs) Yes, we did. And John was a student at the time at SC. And I just remember he was friends with one of our hostesses and he and I got to know one another. And then we got reunited when we opened Post and Beam in 2011, 2012. John comes in the restaurant and he gives me a big hug. He's man, you opened this in my hood, in my hood, man. I like, he's just so happy because John stayed in the neighborhood, yeah, as, you, of course. as you know. And I loved the pancakes at Post and Beam. He would come in there with his family, his kids. And so he and I would end up talking and he proposed an idea to do a documentary on my family in the restaurant world back in New York. My dad had a restaurant, so I'm a second generation restaurateur. John wanted to do a documentary going back to then and right up through Post and Beam. We had a lot of fist bump conversations and we're going to do this. It's great. We end up at a meeting at Netflix 
And two weeks later, John passes away, sadly. And just a devastating, devastating loss. And I know he was a close personal friend of yours. So I wanted to first start, because I've heard you tell this story, Stephanie, I just love it. And for anyone who hasn't heard it, it's still a treat. Do you mind telling the story of when you met John? I believe you were at Columbia and he came in, you were looking to replace you with another African-American reader. You thought John possibly was there for that. Do you mind telling that story? Sure. It's just a great story. Yeah, and it's seared in my mind because I had just been promoted from the story department to the big house to being a creative exec. And yes, of course, I wanted to replace myself with somebody of color. I'd heard that he was doing reading. I heard that he was a reader. And so I don't know how somebody gave me his number. I called him up. He came in. John was just always, his mind was whirly. Like you could see his thinking behind those thick glasses. He used to have these thick Coke bottle glasses. And we started talking. Actually, I'd read one of his scripts. I'd read Twilight Time, which is a beautiful story. Somebody should make that movie about some sisters at a funeral. Anyway, we're talking about the script. I was saying, so this is what's required, being a reader. And she was like, no, I won't tell you what I'm doing. And I said, oh, okay, tell me what you're doing. And then he started pitching me Boys in the Hood. And it sounded like I could see, I was just leaning in because I could see the gleam in his eye. I could see that he was going to make it. I could see that. And so I was like, I'd love to read it. And he was like, no, no, you can't read it. He already had an agent. I'm at CAA and I'm going to make it John Hughes. I was like, John Hughes? He was like, yeah, because it's like a high school movie. And I was like, okay, that's weird. But okay. He left my office. We never even talked about the job, to be honest. I don't even remember having a conversation really about his interest in the job. But I called his agent, Brad Smith at CAA. And I said, I'd love to read this one. It took me calling every other day for two weeks before that script arrived in my office. And I remember when it came, I closed the door. I sat in this big overstuffed chair. I read the script and I was weeping. And it was, as Oprah is wont to say, an aha moment. I just felt like this is why I'm here. It was just so clear to me. It was like, this is why I'm here to get this movie made. So I just set about trying to get it made in any way I knew how, which was to bring it one-on-one -on -one to every executive at the studio and have them read it for me, have a conversation with me before we got to the table. And at the time... And that's not what's normally done, right? No, normally, no. Normally you right. just put it on weekend read and everybody reads it. But my instinct was not to do that. And we were also moving from sharing the lot at Burbank with Warner Brothers to Culver City. And Don Steele had hired me, but they kicked her out right away. And then it was John Peters and Peter Goober who were in. By the time we made it over to the Thalberg building in Culver City, Frank Price was in charge. And then I put it on Weekend Read, having given it to all, like 12 executives and pledged them to be supportive. We got to the table and we went around the room one by one and everybody was not supportive. And I, it was my first real, oh my God, this is political. This is not what I thought this was at all, except for Amy Pascal, who had mentored me and had advocated for my leading the story department. And Frank Price, who waited till everybody said stuff like, there's no, we're not going to make this movie. And you can't just put music in a movie because John had written music into the movie to make a story. Anyway, we got to Frank and Frank said, I think it's wonderful. And I think we should make it. 
And that was really cool. I've had a lot of those moments where I advocate for things and I get shut down until we make it or something happens. And then all of a sudden I'm validated in my And there's nothing better than that, to just believe in something so strongly and then to have it work out. It's a good thing. Yeah. And it obviously it changed the course of your career. Not that great things wouldn't have happened anyway, but you were on the fast track at that point. But I want to stay with John for a moment, Stephanie. I think maybe one of the last times I saw you was actually at his memorial. I don't know if you remember that. I think we ended up standing close to one another and attending the, uh, the memorial. He made a number of movies with John, get to sense you, and he had a very unique relationship. Just talk a little bit about John, what was special about him, and... What did we lose when we lost John? What did the community lose? John was so great. John was so passionate about making movies and making TV shows. He was passionate about life. He was a lover of life. He was passionate about his kids. He loved his kids. He was passionate about sailing. I've been on his boat several times. He almost killed me twice. He was a generous guy. Like I didn't realize how generous until he died. And so many people surfaced to say how he had supported them. He had mentored them. I don't even know how he got all the work done, given all the folks that he had mentored. He was angry and he was unabashed about his anger. He hated racism and he hated that it was so difficult for even him to get things made that he wanted to get made. He felt like he had earned his spot in Hollywood. And when we were working on Hustle and Flow, because I worked with Craig and us trying to get it made. I couldn't get it made. And I went to see him. Remember, it was Cinco de Mayo on the soundstage when he was posting Fast and Furious, his movie, his Fast and Furious. And I said, I got this great script and I can't get it done and maybe we should do it. And this was at the advent of digital where you could actually make a movie for $200,000 or something. I said, let's just do it. He, I sold my house because I was like, I'll put up 200, you put up 200, let's just go do it. He took three months to read the script. And then late at night, one night I get this call and he's like, Kathleen, <gasps> we don't, this girl, he'd love he was just a lover. He loved women. Oh, my God. And so many women. And I was like, oh, my God, John, this is going to be so great. We're going to do this together. I introduced him to Craig. Craig loved him. And then it took four more years because we took the script around. We populated it with amazing talent. We couldn't get it done. He was so furious. He just wrote the check. He just wrote the check himself. He was like, fuck it, $2 million. Let's go. And we went down to Memphis. We shot it four weeks, four six-day weeks. And it was one of those things while we were making it. We we're like, whatever happened, the making of this is something. But Stephanie, that also speaks to the tremendous confidence he had in you. He knew what you were capable of to put up his own money. And that's not a small amount of money. He did. He did. It was not a small amount of money, but he put it up. We had, at that point, made... Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, Higher Learning. And then we went on to make two more, which was Hustle and Flow of Black St. Well. He was like my baby brother. He was like my baby brother and my big brother, all in one. And you said, and your boss at times. And my boss, <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember when I turned 40 or 45 or something, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And he was like, what about Miami? Miami's a great place to have fun. 
right? And I was like, okay, because I'm going to go girls trip. He's okay. I told him when I was going, we get to Miami and he told me where to stay, whatever. We get to Miami and he calls me up and he goes, where are you? And I was like, oh, I'm at the place you tell me. And he goes, oh, good. I'm right down the street. And so he flew to Miami to be with me on my birthday. He took me and my girlfriends all over the city to the clubs with the bubbly, with the pop. It was, and he, for what? Like, it was just because he loved me. It was that simple. So we lost a lot. We lost an artist. We lost a friend. We lost a father. We lost a passionate liver of life. And he went out the way he wanted. I'm mad at him because he had high blood pressure. He didn't take his meds. But he lived every single moment of his life in exactly the way he wanted to. And he'll always be part of us. I'm sorry for your loss. And I remember him in that Netflix meeting. And I just remember saying to myself, this brother is pro-black. Yeah, he was he's very pro-black. Not very apologetic. Pro-black. He was going to say what was on his mind, let them know who he was and why he was in that room and why they needed to know what he had to say and feel that loss too. Again, I, I'm yeah. sorry. So, Stephanie, I moved to Los Angeles in 1989, just after Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And it was like a golden time in the early 90s, I think, for independent Black producers and startup companies trying to get off the ground. There were the Hudlin Brothers. Spike obviously had some success. I think Tracy Edmonds got her company going around that time. And some movies got made, clearly Boys in the Hood and some things followed. But there also seemed to be a lack of black executives making it all the way up the ladder. You've certainly had some high-level positions. And there's clearly been a lot of success and a lot more activity in the industry for people of color in the last few years. But there still is no black studio head. And I'm curious why, what your take on that might be. Or am I incorrect? You are incorrect, sir. There oh, is good. a beautiful, black, talented, excellent studio head named Nicole Brown who runs TriStar Pictures. She is the reason we have the Woman King because who else in charge is going to greenlight a $50 million period picture about Black African female warriors, but a Black woman. And she's got the follow-up, I want to dance with somebody, the Whitney Houston movie. She's ironically was Brandy in Boys in the Hood because she was a young actress. She's amazing. And that's a perfect example of how important it is for the gatekeepers to represent us all. Because I'm telling you, there would be no woman king without Nicole. How long has she been in that position, Stephanie? I'd say a couple years. So this is the fruit, and you're about to see the fruit of her labor now. And you're seeing it. Well, that's fantastic. And is she the only one, the only person of color at the top of the studio charts? Who's a president of a studio? Yes. That's fantastic. But why do you think the industry has been slow in that regard? Someone like yourself, someone like Reggie Hudlin, I think there's certainly capable people around that can operate at that level. Why do you think it's not happened? I spent a decade at the studio at Columbia Pictures, and then I spent another four or five years running the Henson Company. Those jobs are very unique. I think, I know speaking for myself, and I know Reggie pretty well, the freedom to have your own agenda, to work for yourself, to really specify your brand and what it is you want to make. You can't do that as a studio executive. Studio executives are corporate jobs. They're company folks. Yes, they can 
green light. They can help green light things they love, but they also have to keep a wider eye on the whole slate. So it takes a certain person to do that. I think for me, I'm way too <laughs> idiosyncratic to be in that kind of position. Understood. Let's turn to a project of yours that I'm really curious about. Billy Preston. Let's talk about that a little bit. He's someone who we haven't heard a lot about. Maybe that's what drew your interest to him, but I know he's an incredibly talented musician and a really interesting person. But what drew you to that project? What drew me to it was Nigel Sinclair at Whitehorse. So he and Jeannie Esta Alfont have created some amazing documentaries over the last several years from Apollo to Lucy and Desi, to the Bee Gees, to Eight Days a Week. And they've been doing it for a really long time. And they had approached me a few years back about joining them on a Billie Holiday project. And then Lee did his Billie Holiday project. So that got it pushed in the back until now. But we'd always had just a general respect for each other. And so they decided they wanted to do the Billie Preston documentary. And fell to them because somebody had been trying to do a book. The book deal fell apart, but they had all this research on Billy. And so they reached out and asked if I was interested. And then I started reading about Billy Preston and his genius and his amazing ability to lift any band up, be it the Beatles or the Stones or Eric Clapton or Barbara Streisand or Neil Diamond. It's uncanny how he used his genius, which was God-given, had to be, because at three years old, he was playing at church on the organ, playing with Mahalia Jackson. His mother was a pianist at church, infused with gospel. He brought soul to everything he did. And all these mostly white bands, but not just like Sly and the Family Stone, just everybody wanted some of that magic. And then to top it off, he was gay. Being a big gay Black man at the time, we assumed was especially coming from the church, a burden that really made things difficult for him. As it turned out, meeting all of these folks who knew him intimately, and by the way, every single person we met with loved Billy Preston, loved him, not for his genius, but for Billy, because he was just this bundle of joy whenever he showed up. Everybody knew he was gay, and everybody was comfortable with it. So we went into the story thinking it was about Black gay man, oppressed and suppressed, and couldn't be his true self. He was so authentically him. At the time, it was even more edifying about this genius. But there were issues. He was molested in the gospel circuit, as so many of our young prodigies were. Coupled with the church, the Black church, really preaching fire and brimstone for homosexuals, while the whole choir behind them is homosexual. Where did he grow up, Stephanie? Where was he from? He was born in Houston, but he grew up in L.A. He's an L.A. guy. So he'd go from church to church on Sundays playing the organ. And it's just a fascinating story. Another look at somebody who, as you know, is nicknamed the fifth Beatle. He's the only person who played with the Beatles who was ever credited on a Beatles album because of his contribution. But for me, the documentary format was just mind-blowing because I'm so used to working on a script, making sure it's good, making sure it's tight, and then going and shooting the best version of that versus taking this sort of idea and watching the pieces assemble themselves out of interviews and footage and research. And 
It's just a whole other way of telling a story that's more fungible. It's more awakening for the filmmakers because we're on this journey. We don't know where it's going to end. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I'm super excited. I want to make more docs and, and I hope that we do Billy justice. That's so exciting, Stephanie. I can't wait for that. I, it sounds phenomenal. It's in good hands too with you. But when I read recently where Warner Media is pulling back on their docu-series and streaming was a really good outlet or continues to be, I hope, a good outlet for documentaries because prior to that, where did they live? And then now we can go back, we can find the things we're interested in, we can revisit them or we can find them. So what do you, how do you see that contraction? Do you have any ideas to why Warner Media would pull back? The Stanley Tucci thing on CNN looks like a hit show to me. Oh, I love that show. I love that show. I want to go wherever he is and eat that food. Things come in cycles. When you're in the business long enough, you see the ebb and flow of Black content, of whether it's documentaries that had such a huge renaissance in the last few years and still does enjoy a great deal of interest among financiers and audiences. Rom-coms are dead. Like everything is in a cycle. And the cycle is dictated by the audience's needs and wants and the studio's needs and wants in terms of the financial bottom line, right? So those two very evolving systems are always trying to sink into the right gear. So I don't worry anymore because it always comes back around. You're in this long enough, you just go, all right, this is a cycle. It'll come back around. On that note, and maybe there isn't one, but is there a pet project of yours that you've longed to get made that presents some challenges that uh, you haven't had a yes to yet? Brad, all of the things I work on present challenges. You know why? Because they're usually black or brown. They're usually female or queer. And they're usually a fresh perspective into something. Usually things like that don't have comparisons that you can say, oh, this movie made that much, so this can make this much, which is a lot of how movies are evaluated in the script stage, whether they're going to get international money, whether they're going to have enough white stars in it to make it sellable overseas, like all of these factors. So I can't deal with any of that. All I can deal with is what story do I want to tell and what can I do every day to wake up to make it happen? From Choosing the writer who's super passionate about it to the director who will bring a new perspective to it. Everything. And I think, I don't think this is just true for me. I think anybody in this business, white, black, blue, green, yellow, whatever, it's all hard. You know why? Because we're getting people to put up millions of dollars on some kind of dream that's not there yet. Sure. It's always hard. I can tell you about a whole lot of stuff, but I can't tell you the one thing I'm super excited about. That's the furthest along on my slate is Sula by Toni Morrison, which will be a limited series for HBO. Dream come true because those two women, Sula and Nell, are opposite sides of every woman, especially every Black woman. And their friendship is something that is not interfered by white gaze or it's just love. And it's just amazing. I can't wait to see that come to fruition. But I have a lot of good stuff. I'm doing Donnie Hathaway, limited series. I've got the Otis Redding movie, which Otis Redding died at 26, 27 from a plane crash. He never knew Doc in the Bay was a hit, did he? Is that true? No, it hadn't even come out. Right. It came out posthumously. But the story is about Miss Zelma Redding, his wife, 25 at the time, who basically not only held on to the 500-acre ranch 
and the airplanes. Like this dude was far ahead of his time. But because of love did not let him die in the public's mind and built a foundation in Macon, Georgia, based on his entrepreneurial spirit and his need to give his knowledge and his skill to young Black kids. But it's a ghost story. It's a phenomenal love story. I want to tell the story of Billie Holiday, a queer pioneer that people don't even know about. So there's so many stories we're going to tell. And I just have to be on point, be patient, and just persistently press forward. That's the only way it happens. As we're winding down, Stephanie, I've never been in a room when you're pitching a project, but you have such a calm, confident demeanor. And I know, as you just described, it's not an easy industry that you're in. And there's so much going on in the world. And every day, it's how much news can you take? How much do you want to watch? But I'm curious, and you mentioned that you are an optimist. And I'm curious, how do you keep that kind of even flow? Is it yoga, meditation, prayer, all of the above, none of the above? What does it? Love. I think it's all about love. I think that I love my life. I love the people in my life, my kids. I got two grandkids I had over the pandemic who are literally a less than a mile from me. My mom is still here. The people I work with, my husband, that's what wakes me up every day. That's what keeps me focused on telling stories that matter, that are unique and authentic and specific to different people and how they live, that shows the humanity that connects us all. How blessed am I? Like, it doesn't matter what happens as long as you can wake up hopeful that you can make a difference. And I think that's what I would love to instill in the young producers I work with. Producing is so hard. Producing is the only line item on a budget that has no minimums, no health care, no back end for the most part now. And we spend one to 10 to 20 years working for free to make these things happen. That's got to be life. What else is it? Sounds like the life of a restaurateur in some ways. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Stephanie, I can tell you this, as someone who loves your work and loves the stuff that I see coming out of Hollywood now that includes people of color on all sides, it's just so refreshing and inspiring and just nice to see our stories being told. And when you talk about telling stories about people like Donnie Hathaway, and I had the woman who's overseeing Phyllis Hyman's estate on, we did a whole deep dive on Phyllis. Amazing. That's another amazing story. Yeah. Our heroes that we just, we want to see more of that. So Stephanie, I just want to say thank you for today. And thank you for the brilliant work that you do. You really are a light to us all. Oh, Keep on keeping you. up. With what thank you, do. you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having this show to capture some of these stories. I think that's so important too, to inspire other people that, I don't have any specific, I didn't go to film school. I just love telling stories, so thank you. You're welcome, thank you.